0: Father, we thank you for this special time of gathering as a corporate body around your word and to hear from you and to lift our hearts to you. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would work these truths into our hearts and our minds and, and that we would yield our wills to uh, who you are. And... Um, and grow more in our ability to follow you with all of ourselves and out of a love for you, Father. Lord, we just uh, pray that you would bless this time and we thank you for it. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. I heard recently a speaker talk about um, that there are some that make the mistake, some pastors, if you will, make make the mistake of giving people a lot of what they want so that they can give them a little of what they need. And part of how we guard against that here at Harvest is we try to move through systematically um, Scripture and l- as God sees what we need, he leads us to James. As, as God leads us through James, he leads us to James 2. As he leads us to James 2, we move into this this mark of a maturing follower of Christ that we've been at here, and that being following Christ with our actions. And we looked two weeks ago at how that looks to follow Christ with our actions as a church body, and we're here at this point of following Christ with our actions as individuals. So as we finish up this last part of James 2 here, you'll recall that last week we looked at the verses that say, so also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one and here he is Responding for a hypothetical person that he's arguing with, this hypothetical person would be quoting the Hebrew Shema: "I believe that God is one," from Deuteronomy six. And understanding this better, to when the statement would be made, "I believe that God is one," followed with "Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength." Jewish believer, Jewish. Um, religious Jews would have prayed this twice a day to say I believe that God is one is to say I believe that he is perfect I believe that his way is perfect he is whole he is the only one that I should follow he is the only one that my heart should be focused on and he is the one purpose and and drive that I should be following and so that's what James is proposing that this hypothetical person would be responding with, whoa, I believe that God is one. In other words, why do I need to have works? Why should there need to be good works in my life? I believe. And then he says, responds to that, even even the demons believe and shudder. And so James has pointed out for us the faith of the intellectual agreement alone and the faith of the person that has intellectual agreement and even emotional response. And he shares the example of demons. <clears throat> Both these examples of faith fall far short, James says, of saving faith. James continues his hypothetical conversation with this Jewish objector with the verses that we're looking at this morning in, in verses 20 through 26 of James 2. Our kids, um, we had some family friends in, in South Dakota, and they were a very athletic family. And their kids were very athletic. Their kids actually ran every, mo- every day. Uh, they were involved in track and things like that. And, and one time when we were visiting with the family, the kids were outside playing capture the flag, and one of my daughters had on flip-flops and she wasn't really feeling like participating a whole lot. She was just kind of there in in spirit. Um, or maybe, I should say, in body, not in spirit. And so she wasn't really trying that hard. And their, their lawn was pretty hard to run on, um, uh, especially in flip-flops and things. And so as a part of this Capture the Flag game, uh, two of their kids came around the corner of the house and, and met up with my daughter. And uh, one of their... Their youngest daughter, just a little uh, four-year-old girl, mousy girl, um, named Ella, she was just really cute, and um, so they freeze, and she yells to her sibling, don't worry about her, she's useless. (laughs) I want you to see that that our big idea this morning, that James, his statement he makes in verse 20, is that faith that doesn't lead to works is useless to save. It is useless to save. He says, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? James seems to be turning up the heat here by questioning this objectors ability to reason calling them a foolish person what they are arguing makes no sense he's saying there's no connection if there's no connection between their daily life and their beliefs he's like are you able to reason here let's say you have a friend who who has recently become a farmer and he's boasting of these thousand acres that he's farming and so you finally take him up on it to go and, and look at this vast farm that he's running. And, and so you drive out into the country with him and you get out of the truck and, and he says, there it is. Isn't it amazing? And you're expecting to see just hill, one rolling hill after another of corn and beans and you look out and it's just blowing dirt. And you're looking at this and you realize my friend has mistaken being a farmer with being a landowner. Okay? In the same way, the person, a person could be in agreement with the truths of faith in Christ, but we are told here that it is only useless faith that is one that does not bear any fruit. Let's say that the same farmer won't believe that he's really just a landowner rather than a farmer. So you decide that you need to show him a real or a normal farm. This is what James is doing when he points to the faith of two Old Testament characters here in the verses that we're looking at. This moves us to our first principle this morning, that being that saving faith leads to a life of obedience. Saving faith leads to a life of obedience. you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Upon first reading of these verses, it's easy to misunderstand what James is saying here. Okay? There have been some who've even argued that James should not even be a part of the scriptures. And it's because of statements like this. This is because that James seems to be teaching upon first reading that Abraham gained a relationship with God because of his acts of obedience. And I want to point out to you first and foremost this morning, that's not what James is teaching. I mean, he says right here, Was not Abraham our father justified by works? He even goes on to broaden that principle to everyone, saying, You see, that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. The idea that Abraham earned his righteousness his right standing before God would be a contradiction to the rest of Scripture. In Romans 4, Paul argues that Abraham was seen as righteous by God before his good works, specifically his circumcision in obedience to God's command. We see this in Romans 4 where it says, "'What then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh?' For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Meaning, that's not what gained favor from God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. I don't know if you noticed, that's the same statement that James refers to from Genesis 15. That Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. We could get into how Paul and James are answering different questions that are coming to them from Jewish believers, but we've got to narrow it down here somewhere. But how could both Paul and James be using the same term justified, but seem to be using it differently? Uh, Paul seems to be saying that justification happens apart from works. James seems to be saying it can't happen without works. To be justified means to be declared righteous or to be shown righteous. For instance, if we stand before a, a just judge, we are looking to, society is looking, the community is looking to that judge to tell us whether or not this person that is on trial before them deserves to be released. Are Are they innocent? Are they righteous of what they're being accused of? We're asking that judge to show whether or not that person is righteous. Now what's unique to Romans 4 and Romans and what Paul introduces into this is that through the work of Christ... God is declaring us as a judge to be righteous even though within ourselves we're not. But he's applying the person and work of Christ to us when we accept that work, person and work for ourselves. So to be justified in one sense in Romans, he's talking about that moment when God says, this person is righteous by the righteousness of Christ. But in the other sense, it's to be shown to be righteous. In a normal sense of a what we would see as a just court proceeding or something like that. In Psalm 51, David describes his actions of repentance to be in order that God might be justified in what he does. Now, God's not being given righteousness. God's being shown in what he does to be Righteous. To show also how declare and showing can be interchangeable, Psalm 19 tells us the heavens declare the glory of God. Now, the heavens aren't giving righteousness to God. The heavens are showing the righteousness of God. When Paul writes that Abraham was not justified by works, he's saying that Abraham was not made righteous in God's sight as a result of his works. When James writes that Abraham was justified by works, he's saying that Abraham was shown to have become righteous in his life as a result of his faith, in fitting with James' argument here. Making it simple, as he often does, Warren Wearsby says, there's a perfect harmony between James and Paul on justification. Paul is considering man in relation to God in which he is justified by faith apart from works. James is considering man in relation to his fellow man. In other words, as we see it horizontally. In which case works are the visible evidence of faith. And then he continues and takes this to the application which James does. In saying, we have a right to believe that a profession of faith which bears no fruit is an empty profession. So, as we look at Abraham's life, we'll see that James is pointing in this action of offering up Isaac, James is pointing to the capstone of his life of faith. But it's In some ways, hard to see that in the way that the statements are put after each other. So, in looking at Abraham's life of trusting God's truth here, let's talk. Let's take the opportunity to gain an understanding of Abraham's journey with God as it comes to his being a part of God's covenant with him in bringing Christ to the earth, bringing the deliverer that was promised. Abraham is just a random descendant of Shem, okay? Shem being the descendant of Noah to whom a a special blessing was spoken that he would be the descendant to whom the deliverer would come through. There's no Hebrew ethnic group at this point. We're talking year 20. 90 BC, 2,090 years prior to Christ. So we step into this as God steps into Abraham's life. In Genesis 12, it says, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is the Abrahamic covenant. And we don't have a, you know, we could, we could sit on this passage all morning. But let me share with you that this is an eternal, literal covenant unconditional covenant between God and Abraham still to be fulfilled in the nation of Israel in the remnant that will follow Christ. I want you to see here that the deliverer is promised to have come through Abraham's descendants and signified in the fact that all of the families of the earth would be blessed through Abraham's descendants. This is the one that was promised to crush the head of the serpent. This is the one who would be a blessing to the world through the descendants of Shem. We pick up in verses 6 through 7 of Genesis 12. It says, Abraham passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. So this is the promised land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Part of this land is where Israel is located today. One day, all of this land will belong to the nation of Israel. I want you to see what Hebrews 11 says about Abraham at this point. It says, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. And then verse 10 follows. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Notice Abraham didn't obey God because he was afraid of him or because, okay, now I've kind of entered into this covenant thing. I better watch what I do. Abraham followed God expectantly anticipating I am going to return one day to a relationship with him that our people had, that man had in the garden before. This was a, he knew that the deliverer was to come. He knew that redemption was coming. Maybe not in his lifetime, but it was coming. Ever notice in the hall of faith that, that this comes from, if you will, from Hebrews 11... It doesn't say, by faith, Dwight really believed in Christ as his Savior and nothing ever came of it in his daily life. So you wouldn't have known it by watching him. If if you see the examples of faith that we see through Hebrews 11, we'll see this again with Rahab. By faith, they stepped out. And thats I just point to that because that's what James is drawing out of Abraham's life. So years go by and Abraham continues to grow in wealth and reputation. Those who bless him are being blessed. Those who curse him are being cursed. But he's worried about the fact that he still has no heir to usher in God's deliverer. Genesis 15 tells us, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, Oh God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Abraham didn't have a problem with having heirs. Okay, I'll explain that here. He says, And Abraham said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Eliezer is Abraham's oldest servant. There was a custom of that time that a man who was childless could simply adopt one of his servants, make him his heir, and everything could go to him. So this is Abraham saying, I've got an idea. How about Eliezer? Okay? Because I don't want to miss out on this, God. And it seems like. You're missing a step here. Okay? So it continues. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. You, Abraham, your very own son, shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your offspring be you, Abraham not a Eliezer's father, you. And notice, this is what's quoted in both Romans 4 and James, and he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. This is where Abraham is described, at least in Genesis. Hebrews 11 gives us some insight that Abraham was showing faith in the promise prior to this as well. This is here where he's described as having gained a relationship with God based on a righteousness that God reckoned to him, that God considered to be to his account. This is the moment that Paul is referring to when Abraham was justified before God. This is also the moment that James is referring to as being fulfilled in Abraham's life of obedience. So Abraham has lived 10 more years in canon. Sarah still is not pregnant. Ten years ago, she was 80, he was 90. Now he's 100, she's... Wait, yeah. Now he's 100 and she's 90. There's another law of the land here that says that they could, if Abraham were to have a child with one of their servants, they could adopt that child and answer God's obvious problem here. So Sarah convinces Abraham to have a child with their handmaiden Hagar in order to fulfill God's promise in this cultural way. Ishmael is born from whom came the Arab ethnic groups. And I'm sorry, I was wrong about their ages here. Here they are, Abraham's 87 or so, Sarah's 77. Okay? Thirteen more years pass. Ishmael is 12 or 13 years old. And they're thinking that they fixed God's problem. God appears again to Abraham and repeats his promise, but rejects Ishmael. He tells him that Sarah is the one who's going to bear the promised child. He tells him this in Genesis 17. It says, then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said, shall a child be born to a man who is a 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, not just you, Abraham, but Sarah shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. What covenant? That original covenant that he has made with Abraham, which is an outgrowth of that original promise that was made to Adam and Eve that one day a deliverer would come that would crush the head of the serpent. And he's going to renew that covenant with Isaac, he says, and expand it even more, so better explaining it. Isaac is eventually born, and some years pass. Just as a note, actually, Ishmael, from whom we see the descendants of uh, the Arab ethnic groups, at this point in history, both Jews and spiritually Christians see Abraham as their father. Muslims also see Abraham as their father. The dividing line is that Muslims believe that Ishmael is the promised son and we will tell you that we and Jews believe that Isaac is the promised son so it's a pivotal moment of history really especially for our day today in which every armed conflict across the world right now has its heart in that moment to tell you the truth Isaac is eventually born. Some years pass. Abraham and his family are now living in Beersheba, close to present-day Jerusalem. Isaac is somewhere in his teenage years. And God appears to Abraham with a curious statement, which I don't have there, but I'll read it for you. It says, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham... And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham obeys. He, he takes Isaac and, and they go into the mountain range of Moriah God is going to tell him specifically what mountain that's significant, what mountain he's to offer Isaac on. They get there. Isaac is asking, where is the sacrifice? Abraham is saying, God will provide. Abraham gets to the point. um, You know, we're talking 100 plus years old. Isaac's a teenager. Isaac is submitting to Abraham's obedience I uh, probably could have fought this guy off so we get to the picture to the point of Isaac laying on the altar Abraham with knife in hand and then we see in here in Genesis 22 10 through 12 it says then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said Abraham Abraham said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. Seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And the Lord provides a ram, which wasn't there before. Provides a ram caught in the thicket. Let me lend a little bit of significance to this moment. The angel of the Lord, you study this, the angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Christ. Meaning, it is Christ before taking on flesh. Anytime you see that pop up in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Christ. I, I can answer questions, reasons for that. Mount Moriah is the mountain range in which Christ was crucified on. Christ himself is saying, I am providing a substitution. As if to say, and he had been thinking, and one day I myself will be the final lamb. So just the significance of this moment is beautiful. I just wanted to take a moment to draw into that. So what does Hebrews say about this moment? This is also amazing. And this really points to me further confirmation that Abraham was saved because of his faith in the coming deliverer of the covenant. Hebrews 11 says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who received the promise, oh, I'm not there yet, there it is. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And and he who had received the promise, being Abraham, was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This is the, the supernatural picture that we get into Abraham's faith at this point. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. Why? Because he had promised from Isaac will all of this come? And he was called a friend of God. From which, he figurative speaking, he did receive him back. Abraham was trusting that God was going to do what he said through Isaac. So back to what James is saying about Abraham. Okay, coming full circle here. He says the scripture was fulfilled. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. From Genesis 15, it was fulfilled in his life of righteousness and the capstone of that in Genesis 20, James is saying, was that he was shown by his works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar what he is saying is that his action fulfills what was said about him back in Genesis 15. He believed God that he would bring through his offspring what he had promised. So he says, you see that the faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. When James writes that Abraham's faith was active along with his works, this is the, the main idea there. His faith carried out into his life. It stayed active. It stayed involved. It stayed affecting the choices that he made later on. It wasn't simply mental agreement. It produced good works and therefore showed itself to be saving faith. This is why he goes to Abraham. This this has brought significance to us because of what James says following this. You see that a person is justified, is shown to be righteous by works and not by faith alone. Saving faith shows in a person's life, he's saying. Think back to the disagreement that comes from this hypothetical question. I believe that God is one. That person would be arguing that all is needed is to believe. I guess in our culture, this might be the person saying, whoa, what do you mean? There should be something in my life. I drove a stake in the ground. I remember, I prayed a prayer. You know, I said, okay, Lord, I know I'm a sinner and I know that Jesus died for me and I need you. Um, so we please come into my heart Amen. And there's been nothing from there. This is in our culture similar to what James is speaking to when the guy says, "Whoa, I believe that God is one. What do you mean? I need to have some sort of good fruit in my life to show for it." This is where he's going. This would be the type of person that the church spoken of by Paul in writing to Titus when he says they profess to know God but they deny him by their works. You know, in, um, here in Harvest, we can say this, we know a little about carpet stains. Okay, we can say that, right? And, and I know that the people are more important than the building. Um, and the way it works is, when a, when a stain is down in the padding... No matter how much you clean that surface, it's always going to wick up from the padding. That's how it works. If I can use this illustration here, like a carpet stain that is deep in the padding always wicks back up to the surface. Our position of righteousness before God, the, the, the relationship that we gain through faith is expected to wick into our behavior. In studying cultural anthropology, we learn to look at culture like an onion. Okay? And we'd say, the outer skin, don't get caught up by the outer skin. That's just the behavior. It, but because someone's culture is multiple levels and what's at the core. And so what James is saying is that if Christ is at our core, it should wick itself out and Appear in the skin of our behavior. That's what he's arguing for here. That's what I would argue for. It's what D.L. Moody said when he would often say, Every Bible should be bound in shoe leather. Every Bible should be bound in shoe leather. So if we claim to have received Christ, we should see later choices to trust God's faithfulness and obey his commands. Not perfectly. And if I were standing up here saying, so your hair better look this way, your skirt better be at least this long, that's legalism. For me to give you now, okay, this is a list of at harvest. If you claim to know Christ, you better have these things in line. That is certainly venturing into legalism there. And that's not what we're talking about. Our life should resemble Christ more and more. This leads us into our second principle here. Don't worry, it's not going to be as long as the first. He says, in the, and that second principle being saving faith moves us from death to life. He says, in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the bar- body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works, is dead. James shares how saving faith should move us from death to life. He chooses the example of the woman Rahab. Let's look here at Rahab's steps of faith, or specifically, he's pointing to one step of faith says, in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. So let's talk about Rahab here, okay? Um, those of you that are like, I'm just going to act like I know who this person is. Don't worry. We're, let's, let's get to it. The nation of Israel, okay, um, Abraham has Isaac, and Isaac's promised son is Jacob, Jacob his name is changed to Israel. Jacob has 12 sons. These 12 sons become the nation of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel, one of those being Judah. Judah is promised then to be the one that's going to bring the deliverer, the Christ. And so Jacob and his 12 sons and those that have with them at one point moved down to Egypt for the protection um, during famine through through the ministry of Joseph they're enslaved there for 430 years at that point under that protection of Egypt they become a people numbering 3 million the exodus happens and they're set free from Egypt they cross over the red sea they wander in the wilderness for 40 years and making their way to this promised land that is promised to Abraham. In the meantime, Moses passes away and Joshua is the replacement of Moses. They're poised to cross into the Jordan, cross over the Jordan, into the promised land. The first fortified city that they're going to face is Jericho. They have faced battles of larger nations than themselves and God has delivered them miraculously time and time again. So here, poised to cross Jordan and take on Jericho, Joshua sends two spies into Jericho. Now, I think that we can see from Rahab's words that this gets around. We got some people from those people across the river here in our city. You know, something's going on here. All right, so Rahab makes a choice to risk her life to hide the spies on her roof even as soldiers are looking for them. Listen to her statement. This is beautiful. It says, before the men lay down, she being Rahab came to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For when we heard how the Lord dried up the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, wouldn't have been that amazing if they kind of walked around on shallow ground water like some people want to say, right? Um, Dried up the Red Sea, and this got all the way up to Cana, and all the people there. Anyway, sorry. And she goes on. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, these being the kings, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Let me just take a folk religion side point here. This is phenomenal. Because man-based religion sees God as stronger in certain areas. Sees the deity stronger in certain areas. And uh, so that's why this nation would have its God and this nation would have its God over here. And so as they see these people travel from Egypt and really... Um, Uh, being delivered miraculously and at this point they're on the other side of the Jordan and they're like okay maybe their God stops there can you imagine what it would have been like when the Jordan parts and the nation of Israel walks across so statements in the Old Testament let me tell you statements in the Old Testament like this and they're all over your God he is God of the heavens above and the earth beneath so many times, God says, I'm going to do this so that they will know I am the God of the whole earth. Those are phenomenal statements for the culture of that day. Okay, so notice what Rahab said about the other people. Even in her city. They have knowledge about God and they're afraid. Remind you of somebody that James? They believe and they even shudder. Rahab asks the spies to spare her and their fa- her family. The Lord miraculous keep, miraculously keeps her home standing, though it's in the city wall, which miraculously crumbles before the nation of Israel. And you'll have to read that in Joshua 2. But the question is what made Rahab different? What was Rahab's step of faith that caused her to be shown to be righteous, having saving faith? Recall here, James shows by the life of Abraham that saving faith is one that leads to a life of obedience. And this was disputing the purely intellectual response, claiming to have faith. In the case of Rahab, she's different from her townspeople in that she knew the truth that Jehovah is the God of the heavens and the earth, she had emotional agreement that her heart, her heart melted with everyone else's in the city. Rahab is the only person in Jericho to make the choice to do something about it and hide the spies. Further, her family is the only other people in Jericho that make the choice to join her in her home, which would have been a little odd and risky. James is contrasting Rahab with the belief of the demons, which is purely knowledge with shuddering. Rahab submitted her will as well. Not just the head, not just the emotions, but the will as well. This is what Hebrews 11 says about her. By faith, Rahab the prostitute, do I have that there? Maybe not. Well, it says, it's probably in there somewhere else. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Notice again, Hebrews 11 does not say, by faith, Alice, believing the truth and she was really, really emotionally jazzed up by it. It's just that you couldn't tell from the decisions that she made. By faith, Rahab did not perish with those who were disobedient because she'd given freely welcome to the spies. Run that through the biblical theology of salvation and what is being said also about Abraham and see that her belief allowed her to receive a righteousness from God based on the work of Christ and it worked out in her decisions. I appreciate this quote. Faith is not believing in spite of evidence. Okay? Isn't that what we often think? That faith is believing in spite of evidence that shows otherwise. That's not what it is. Faith is not believing in spite of evidence. Faith is obeying in spite of consequence. Faith is obeying in spite of consequence. Rahab's risky action of faith moved her and her family from being numbered among the dead to the living. There's a danger in America, okay? We're running out of risky steps of faith. Okay, we have Facebook, right? I don't, you probably noticed that. Man, you say anything on Facebook and some, a friend of some friend is going to be like, how can you say something like that? You must be one of those fundamentalists, you know? But we lack risky steps of faith in America. And so it, go- it goes to be said that we could be lacking the opportunity to see whether or not our faith is useless. and so we need to be extra careful to examine our hearts in some ways it's become far too easy to say that we believe in Christ without the risk in America so James summarizes the example of Rahab with this statement in verse 26 for as the body apart from the spirit is dead so also faith apart from works is dead Now, connect that to the people of Jericho. There's this people over there. They got a God that's the God of the whole earth. And I'm afraid, James says, their faith apart from works, they died with everybody else. But you have Rahab who had a faith that was significant and you see that in the fact it was useful to save and you see that in the fact of her actions. Again, it's not her actions that saved her. You see the usefulness of her faith in her actions. James is saying that faith without action is no sign of life. New life should not be considered to have come to a person until there is evidence in their lives. This is part of the reason why I have a heart for teenagers, I've shared this before, I'm going to share this a lot next week, and that is that we have a tendency in America to say, my Johnny prayed a prayer when he was five, and now I don't need to worry about him. But I can tell you as a youth pastor, and many of you that have worked with teenagers, I've watched plenty of Johnnies walk away from their faith at age 15. And I believe that at the teenage years is when faith is going to show itself as to whether it was useful to save. And I know parents don't always like to hear that. And I've got a 15-year-old and a 12-year-old. You know, in the early church even, um, a person wasn't baptized until they were observed for at least a year. They didn't want to give them a false assurance. And also, they didn't want to let wolves into their membership. I use the term membership because in the early church, baptism was membership. Because you were signing yourself up to get disowned. And baptism was a breaking of ties and a joining of something. Like with Rahab... This comes with the Lord driving the person to make a choice to obey. I'm not saying they're saved by a choice to obey. Many of us have stood over a person, maybe even a loved one, uh, at the moment of death. And if you've experienced that, you know that when the spirit leaves the body, you know it's done. Um, aside from a special work of the Lord, it's done. And the waiting is over. And while we still have reverence for that person and for that body, we recognize that it's no longer the same. In the same way, James is saying, we should look for life to have been breathed into us like the difference between a body without a spirit and body with a spirit. We should be looking for that, he's saying, as he says, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. We should sense that we have come alive. We should sense that that person that we're we're, um, working with, maybe discipling, that our child in those teenage years have come alive in a way that would not have been without Christ. One writer states, James 2 established that the mature Christian practices the truth. He does not merely hold to ancient doctrines. He practices those doctrines in his everyday life. His faith is not dead the dead faith of the intellectuals or the demonic faith of the fallen spirits. It's the, the dynamic faith of men like Abraham and women like Rahab. Faith that changes a life and goes to work for God. Now, um, I just want to share with you some, some questions um, that I picked up that um, I would hope would be helpful for you. And certainly, I don't want because we're in James and James is hammering on this and so JD's hammering on this, the conception can be, well, JD's been here for almost a year and he's decided nobody's saved. <laughs> That's not it at all. I have to tell you, and I've shared this with people before here. Um, Kelly and I have experienced in this fellowship, people that are so dedicated to the kingdom of God. And, I, and I'm not, I'm not, um, uh, let me say, I'm not, I'm not exaggerating this to say that we've experienced in less than a year more people in Crawfordsville that are dedicated to the kingdom of God and this fellowship than we probably have experienced in the last 10 years. So I want to give you that encouragement. We're here because James is here. All right? So don't take what I'm saying to you as like, J.D. doesn't like us. You know, something like that. And we're walking through this together. But in this, I feel like I'd fall short if I didn't share some questions on this. And, and I'll invite John and uh, his team to come up just as I, as I read these. Um, and these questions aren't like, okay, you've got to get 100% on here or um, you might not have saving faith or something like that. And I, but, but if it's only one of them that you would agree with, I would say you need to prayerfully search your heart. But just some questions. Was there a time when I honestly realized I was a sinner and admitted this to myself and to God? Was there a time when my heart stirred to flee from the wrath to come? Have I ever seriously been grieved over my sins? Do I truly understand the gospel that Christ died for my sins and rose again? Do I understand and confess that I cannot save myself? Have I trusted Christ and Christ alone for my salvation? Do I enjoy a living relationship with him through the word and the spirit? Has there been a change in my life? Do I maintain good works or are my works occasional and weak? Do I seek to grow in the things of the Lord? Can others tell that I've been with Jesus? Do I have a desire to share Christ with others or am I ashamed of him? Do I enjoy the fellowship of God's people? Is worship a delight to me? Am I ready for the Lord's return or will I be ashamed when he comes for me? Now, again, these are not steps to salvation. These are some of the things that we want to be seeing in our life to confirm the Holy Spirit is there. God is at work. God doesn't have a close relationship with somebody without making an impact. That's what James is saying. Father, um, thank you so much for the relationship with you they comes simply and strictly by grace through faith, <clears throat> that there is nothing that we can do to ever earn that, and that's not your plan. That doesn't glorify you, to earn a relationship with you. But thank you also that you don't leave us where we are, <clears throat> that your plan is to change us little by little over the course of our life. Thank you, Lord God, for the words of James. Thank you, Lord God, for the truth that uh, we can search our lives and our hearts and we can know um, if that relationship with you is there. Uh, Lord, I just pray that you'd receive um, our worship as we reflect on this. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.